some words from Psalm 24. The earth and everything in it belong to the Lord. The world and all its people belong to him. The Lord placed it all on the oceans and rivers. Who may climb the Lord's hill or stand on his holy temple? Only those who do right for the right reasons and don't worship idols or tell lies under oath. The Lord God who saves them will bless and reward them because they worship and serve the God of Jacob. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Creating, redeeming, sustaining God. As as we gather in the name of Christ, we offer our prayers. Sunday mornings aren't always the easiest. Some of us arrived early with duties to perform. And others know that their tasks still lie ahead. Some of us arrive stressed because simply getting here has been a huge challenge. Some of us arrive tired because our lives are so crowded with things that have to be done. Some of us arrived angry or sad, confused, bemused or bewildered by the week we've had. Some of us arrived excited, delighted, energised and happy because of good news in our lives. However we arrived, however we feel, whatever has been happening, you welcome us in love and delight in our praise and prayer. Perhaps we have distractions we need to set down in order that you might refresh and renew us. Perhaps we have regrets that need to be named so that we may be freed from their power. Perhaps we have failures causing us sadness or shame from which we need to be released. Whatever occupies our hearts and minds, whatever has been less than good, you graciously forgive us and allow us to begin afresh. Some of us have diaries full of plans for the week ahead. Some of us will find those plans disrupted by life's unpredictability. Some of us will have difficult weeks and some of us will have rewarding weeks. Whatever lies ahead of us, we depend on your sustaining power to strengthen us. God, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, we commend to you our past week We offer you our present worship and we trust you for the days to come. Amen. We read first from the prophet Micah, chapter 6. Listen to the Lord's case against Israel. 
Arise, O Lord, and present your case. Let the mountains and the hills hear what you say. You mountains, you everlasting foundations of the earth, listen to the Lord's case. The Lord has a case against his people. He is going to bring an accusation against Israel. The Lord says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I been a burden to you? Answer me. I brought you out, out of I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead you. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab planned to do to you, and how Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. Remember the things that happened on the way from the camp at Acacia to Gilgal. Remember those things, and you will realize what I did in order to save you. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? Shall I bring the best calves to burn as offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep, or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? No. The Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is to do this, to do what is just, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. And Matthew chapter 5, reading the first 12 verses. Jesus saw the crowds and went up a hill where he sat down. His disciples gathered round him and he began to teach them. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are those who mourn. God will comfort them. Happy are those who are humble. They will receive what God has promised. Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. God will satisfy them fully. Happy are those who are merciful to others. God will be merciful to them. Happy are the pure in heart. They will see God. Happy are those who work for peace. God will call them his children. Happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of evil lies against you because you are my followers. Be happy and glad for a great reward is kept for you in heaven. This is how the prophets who lived before you were persecuted.
For the next four weeks, the lectionary invites us to explore in some depth a part of what is usually referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And the resource material that I've been using to help me prepare for that suggests we do so under the title of Learning to Be Church. And that seems to echo one of the theories about the origins of Matthew's Gospel. That theory being that it was written for a particular community or a particular church. Today, a lot of what I'm going to say is background and introduction to the Sermon on the Mount and how we might approach it. And then I will think briefly about the attributes and attitudes that are referred to in the blessings, also known as the Beatitudes. Whilst nobody will ever be able to prove this hypothesis... Many scholars think that the original readers of the Gospel of Matthew were mainly Jewish converts to Christianity, and they identify within that Gospel a strong motif of Jesus as the new Moses. For example, the birth narrative sends Jesus to and calls him back from Egypt. Some people see the Gospel as divided into five discourses, mirroring the five books of the Torah, And certainly the opening words of chapter 5 have a distinctly Jewish flavour, if you know what you're looking for. Jesus withdraws from the crowd and he goes up a mountain. And doing this is not just about going to a place where he's not going to be interrupted. This symbolises the nearness to God, the going up, and the mountain as a sign of something important is going to happen. First century Jewish readers would have been very familiar with the stories of Moses encountering God on a mountain and of Elijah and of other stories. All the important moments seem to have mountains in them. Having gone up the mountain and maybe having had a little bit of time alone for rest and refreshment, Jesus summons his disciples to join him. In Matthew's account, Jesus hasn't yet selected the 12 who he will have as his inner group of friends, the apostles as we know them. And he won't do so for some considerable time. It's actually chapter 10 by the time we get to that point. So this was probably a large gathering, maybe as many as 100 people who came up the mountain and sat down with Jesus. However many of them there were, and whoever they were, The fact that they were designated as disciples is significant. The words that follow were addressed solely to people who had in some measure committed themselves to the teachers of an itinerant rabbi called Jesus, who came from Nazareth. Scholarly opinions vary as to whether this was a single sermon or is a collection of sayings, but it's most likely that it is a selection of material from what might have been called a rabbinic school. If you look at Luke's parallel account, the Sermon on the Plain, um, there's a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences. The description of what happens and the terminology used clearly mark Jesus out as a rabbi. He sat down, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach. That's what rabbis did. They sat, they opened their mouths, and they taught. A bit difficult to teach without opening your mouth, but there you go. 
The Sermon on the Mount seems to me to be at once a delightful and a terribly challenging read. Jesus' followers are to reject both a pagan worldview and a Pharisaic worldview and to embrace a far more challenging universal ethic. We need to be a little bit careful how we hear and interpret words here because meanings change over time. Pagan here is not talking about occult practices, nor is it talking about faiths other than Judaism or Christianity. Rather, it suggests what we might refer to as a secular worldview. The observation that even the pagans do that is more or less saying, well, that's just what anyone would do. That's just normal, decent behavior. But for Jesus' followers, that's not enough. Similarly, the word Pharisee doesn't refer to individual people who occupied that position, and it's certainly not an anti-Semitic remark. It's the attitude of religious superiority, epitomized by the religious establishment, that is challenged. A kind of holier-than-thou doctrinal orthodoxy and strict observance of all the ritual and regulations. That's not good enough for Jesus' followers. You're not to be holier than thou religious, and you're not to be selfish and worldly. You're to be something else altogether. You're to follow a different drumbeat, if you like. Teaching that is recorded here, though, has some incredible expectations. They seem impossible. There's a really strong emphasis on ethical codes and ways of behaving. Because of this, some scholars have said, well, is this actually a theology of salvation by works then? That if you obey the rules and fulfill what Jesus requires, you can somehow earn salvation. There's certainly no explicit mention of such a view. And most scholars would reject it precisely because the original audience were disciples. They didn't need a gospel of conversion. They were already committed in some measure to following Jesus. What they needed was an ethic of discipleship. Instructions for those who are learning how to be church. I want to do a little bit of a kind of a sidestep for a bit um, and look at two words that are used quite commonly at the moment in popular and academic theology and sometimes with very different meanings, which can be, at best, confusing. These words are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy means right believing, and often that is equated with acceptance of a precisely defined set of doctrines, neatly ignoring the fact that throughout Christian history, diversity of belief and changes in understanding have existed within the parameters of orthodoxy. So, for example, um, something really obvious would be the nature and purpose of baptism. Most Christians throughout history only baptise babies. Baptistic Christians only baptise those who can make a profession of faith for themselves. Or what about communion? All those things about transubstantiation and consubstantiation and goodness knows what else substantiation. 
or how the relationships work out in the Trinity, or indeed what on earth is the parable of the Good Samaritan actually saying? Orthodoxy cannot be equated with one particular Christian viewpoint. It is no more and no less fundamentalism than it is liberalism. It is no more Catholic or Pentecostal or Reformed or Anabaptist than anything else. All of these exist within the grand sweep of Christian orthodoxy. It's really not so easy to say, that's what I mean by Christian orthodoxy. Excuse me. Even if, though, orthodoxy is broader than we might like to think, at least we kind of have a guess of what it stands for, right, believing. Orthopraxy is a more contentious word, being used with different and, I think, actually potentially contradictory understandings. I first came across the idea of orthopraxy when I was learning about Latin American liberation theology. Now, I haven't studied that in any great depth, but essentially it's about a theology of right practice or right living. True to the guiding principles of Jesus, even where this might bring you into conflict with the rules and regulations of the church, even where it might actually challenge traditionally held understandings of orthodoxy. Particularly Latin American liberation theology emerged in a Roman Catholic context. Put crudely, it's more important to live a life that is inspired by the liberating teaching of Christ than to accept and believe the minute of orthodox Christian doctrine. So that's one way that orthopraxy is understood. But if you have read Francis Spufford's very popular book, Unapologetic, has anybody read that? Few of you. He does it the other way around. He equates orthopraxy with a literal adherence to a set of rules, which, if done correctly, leads to a right relationship with God. And that is essentially a salvation by works understanding. In Spufford's interpretation, then, orthopraxy is the absolute opposite of liberation. It constrains the way people have to act to be acceptable to God and the way that God can relate to them. Spufford argues that Judaism and Islam are religions that demand orthopraxy, by which he means fulfilling the rituals and obeying the rules down to the last jot and tittle, which is impossible. Nobody can achieve orthopraxy that way. You cannot get perfection. So he argues that Christianity offers an alternative. What he says we need is the right attitude, the right mindset, inspired by the story of Jesus. And that's kind of what he calls orthodoxy. So the words aren't neatly defined in a way you can absolutely work with them. Orthodoxy is very much, um, in Spufford's model, based on a, a model, a doctrine, sorry, of provenient grace, that God has grace for us even before we think to look for it, and an ethic of love, which liberates the believer from the tyranny of the law. It's actually kind of a bit St. Paul-like, surprisingly, in that respect. It can be very confusing, bewildering. Some of you might have just thinking, well, what on earth is she on about? And who cares anyway? 
The reason I'm sharing it is I think that each of these approaches tries to separate out, unhelpfully, right believing and right behaving. Surely the two, in some measure, have to go together. Surely you, it's not enough to say, well, I've got the right doctrines if they don't shape our daily lives. And how can we live out our lives as Christians unless there are some Christian principles behind that? Right living is the starting point for the liberation theologies. And liberation, sorry, and right believing perhaps for systematic theologians. But in the end, both right believing and right behaving are part of Christian discipleship. And I think that is what underpins the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very complicated bit of scripture, in fact. Some scholars think that the Sermon on the Mount is an interim ethic applicable during the interval between Jesus' earthly ministry and the fulfilment of the kingdom of God. Effectively, what they're saying is, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, in the meantime, this is the way you should live, because blooming you couldn't do that long term. 2,000 years later, these same values should inform the lives of Christians who still expect and anticipate the inbreaking of the kingdom whenever that might come to pass. And yes, it's still as impossibly challenging now as it was then. Incredible demands in the Sermon on the Mount. Almost impossible. What would you do with it if you didn't begin by starting with something that's encouraging? A series of blessings that we know as the Beatitudes. This collection of saying is as mystifying as it is poetic, as challenging as it is comforting, and it's an evergreen favourite for preachers. I don't like to think how many sermons you might have heard on the Beatitudes. Very often they're kind of divided up and we do one a week, as if we can say, that's about the poor people and that's about the sad people and so on. We consider them often in the abstract as well. They kind of refer to they, people out there somewhere. And that does reflect the third-person language of the text, granted. But it's not always the most helpful way to do it. Whilst it is good to have the opportunity to reflect on each saying, I wonder if that tendency means we lose out on other things we might see. Attempts to categorise ourselves or to pigeonhole other people, are fraught with problems. Because human creatures are complicated, and life is inevitably chaotic, even for control freaks like me. Defining any individual based on just one aspect of their life experience, their values, or their lifestyle, is at best partial, and at worst, judgmental. I want to suggest that rather than eight or nine separate groups of people being addressed here, we've actually got four types of human experience and four character attributes, each of which are going to be found, sorry, each of which is associated with an aspect of blessing, either temporal or eternal. And after these eight, the four and four, is one saying that refers to the whole community of faith. Why do I say that? Well, I've already mentioned the first eight blessings are all expressed in the third person, suggesting that whilst all may simultaneously be present within a given church, 
it is very unlikely that one person will simultaneously have all of those applying to them. Poor in spirit, hung, um, hungrying, sad, mourning, merciful, blah, blah, blah. It's a lot of things for any one person to have. But I expect we could find all of them in a church community. And the ninth is expressed in the second person plural. I actually checked the Greek to make sure it was plural, not singular. So this is talking about a shared experience and a communal blessing. Whatever is going on at a personal level, there are also shared experiences and shared values. And we have to try and hold those two together. There isn't time to unpack any of the sayings, but perhaps you could go and have a look um, at them when you go home. The writer gives us four, experiences, four aspects sorry, of human experience. Poverty of spirit, grief, hunger for righteousness, and persecution. Biblical commentators put an awful lot of energy into trying to explain the differences between Luke's literal reference to poverty and hunger and the seemingly spiritual equivalents in Matthew. Many suggest, and I'm inclined to agree with them, that this is an unhelpful dichotomy between things spiritual and physical. And it's just not there in the original languages. I think the same is true today, even if in our language we need more words and more phrases. For example, think of the phrase, poor in spirit. The link between material poverty and health problems, both mental and physical, is well known. And it isn't always clear which one drives the other. And whilst poverty of spirit may just apply to someone who needs to develop a richer prayer life, it could equally mean somebody who is downhearted, demoralised or depressed. Their spirit is impoverished. Likewise, hunger for righteousness could refer to trade justice and an end to food poverty, every bit as much as it could to spiritual nourishment. In any congregation, in our congregation, there will be people who are sad or demoralised or less materially well-off, and there will be those who yearn for justice those who experience discrimination, violence or abuse. And yes, there will be those whose spiritual lives are dry, who who yearn for encounters with the divine and have few faith resources upon which to draw. And they may or may not all be the same people. But there seems to be, me, that same underlying theme here. If life is hard for you now, There are promises of blessing, which might be in your lifetime or might be a way off into the future. I sometimes wonder about the order of the Beatitudes. It's a bit odd. The writer intersperses these four sayings about human situations with four four attributes or attitudes that could lead to blessing. Mercy, purity, peacemaking, and meekness. These attitudes of the heart are all positive. They build up and encourage individuals and communities. 
They free them from regret, from bitterness, from grudges. They free them from resentment and prejudice and, I'm sure, a whole load more other things. And these qualities are not confined to those who seem to have orderly lives and good spiritual credentials. Those who experience personal tragedy through bereavement, who lack material wealth, who feel that their spiritual life is not all it might be, can and indeed should cultivate and express these qualities. Don't get me wrong, we're not doing it to get blessings. We're not saying, well, if I do this, then God will give me that. It's not about that. Mercy, meekness, purity, and peacemaking are things we aspire to. And to our amazement, we discover blessing when we manage to get a step along that path. I think we have an integration of right believing and right living here. You can't earn blessing. You can never merit blessing. But in the melee of human experience, if our intentions are good, if our hearts and minds are aligned with the principles of Christ, or at least if we're making an attempt to do that, we will discover hope, fulfilment, acceptance, and we will begin to glimpse the kingdom which is our ultimate aim, our ultimate home. The last blessing recognises the risks and reality of being part of such a radical community. Misunderstanding and misrepresentation. People inside and outside of that community making life difficult. We need to understand that this is no soft option. Actually, we're called to continue the work of the prophets. That's what it says. So the prophets were treated. You're to be like the prophets. To be like the prophets in a quest for justice, for peace. To announce and exemplify the kingdom of God here and now. Only in heaven, it says, comes the final reward. Only at the end of time, when all things are made new and the kingdom is fulfilled, will you reach that blessing for which you aspire. But you go along that path anyway. These challenges are huge. Humanly speaking, they're impossible. And perhaps, rightly, we all have a terror of the enormity of it all. But it's our call. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. And that's why we need to start with promises. Promises of blessings. We need to know that in the end, all will be well. And it will all be worthwhile. So when we hear these words or read them, it's not just as beautiful words of a bygone time. These are promises, blessings that we should claim for ourselves. Try to believe and seek encouragement from them as we continue our own process of learning to be church. Jesus encouraged his followers by promising blessing in the face of adversity and encouragement in the challenge of authentic discipleship. 
Trusting in those promises, then, we are confident to bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Jesus, you promise blessing to those who are spiritually impoverished, to people who are disillusioned and disappointed by what life has shown them, to people for whom material wealth comes at the price of relationship poverty, to people who have insufficient resources to attend their own daily needs. The kingdom of heaven seems a ridiculous blessing, impractical and idealistic. Yet just as we are called to pray for the kingdom, so we are called to anticipate and to model it now. We pray for those whose lives are blighted by material poverty, that you would give wisdom and courage to those who work to alleviate its immediate effects and to find long-term solutions. We pray too for those who find themselves materially wealthy at the expense of family life, mental or physical health, that you would prompt them to reevaluate their priorities and choose a path to wholeness. Jesus, you promise blessing to those who mourn, to people whose loved ones died recently or long ago, to people who grieve following changes in their personal circumstances, to people who experience the little deaths that life inevitably brings. Comfort is a wonderful blessing, but it can seem an impossible dream in the ache of separation or the fear of uncertainty. We pray for those we know who are experiencing grief or loss and ask that you will show us how we may be a source of true comfort to them. Jesus, you promise blessing to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to people with physical hunger or thirst in an unequal society, to people who long for change that will bring justice, to people whose desire is to live out your will. Satisfaction seems a bit of an odd blessing. Surely that should be a given. Maybe that's the point. We pray for all who work for justice and especially those who commit themselves to seeking fair treatment of the most vulnerable and least able to access nutritious meals, whether here in Glasgow or far away overseas. Jesus, you promise blessing to those who experience persecution. To people arrested or imprisoned for who they are or what they believe. To people who experience violence or abuse at work, school or home. To people who are victimised or marginalised for being different. 
the kingdom of heaven again. Is that blessing any more suitable for persecuted people than for poor people? Perhaps it's all about hope that refuses to be destroyed. And so we pray for those who experience persecution, wrongful imprisonment, domestic or organisational abuse or bullying. Not just that they would have the tenacity to keep going, but also that the object of their hopes would be realised in freedom. Jesus, you promised blessing to those who cultivated the attributes of purity, meekness, mercy and peacemaking. To people like us who want to follow in your footsteps, modelling the integration of right belief with right living, motivated by love and characterised by hope, You bless us by calling us God's children, showing us mercy, and giving us the earth in which to live out our call. So for ourselves, we pray that we would find the encouragement we need to grow as disciples of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Triune God, we have sung your praises, listened for your voice, interceded for the world, and eaten at your table. As we leave here to live out our faith as best we can, please bless us with tenacious hope and steadfast love, now and always. Amen.